day, everyone. Welcome back to our, our second session today. Um, we're going to have a presentation on the science of diversity. And it's going to be a joint presentation from Dr. Mona Sue Weismark, Marcel Giovanetti, and Brian Shin from Harvard University. So Dr. Mona Sue Weismark is an award-winning professor, researcher, and author. Her work on the science of diversity has received global recognition, and she is widely recognized as a leading expert on diversity, inclusion, and polarized groups. Dr. Weismark is best no known for her groundbreaking social experiment of bringing together descendants of slaves and slave owners and descendants of Holocaust survivors and Nazis. She teaches the Psychology of Diversity course at Harvard University, and her work has been featured in pub publications such as the New York Times, The Guardian, Harvard Magazine, and many others. So Dr. Weismark, I'd just like to welcome you to the room now before I introduce the other, the other two. So if you could just turn your, your webcam. <laughs> There we go. Okay. Um, so next we're joined by uh, Marcel Giovanetti. Uh, Giovanetti, and she is a full-time assistant professor in Messiah's University's graduate counseling program in Pennsylvania, and also works part-time as a clinician in private practice at Purposely Soaring LLC. She's presented on numerous occasions at national, regional, state, and local conferences. Marcel serves as a teaching assistant to Dr. Weismark in the Psychology of Diversity course taught at Harvard. And finally, I'm just going to introduce the, the third speaker. It's Brian Shin. So I'm going to turn my cam off and welcome Brian to the room. So Brian, teaching assistant at Harvard University. Brian gra graduated from Rutgers University with a bachelor's degree in psychology and also served with distinction in the U.S. Army from 2011 to 2019 as an enlisted soldier specializing in psychological operations, a branch of the US Army focusing on psychological warfare. So let's give a warm welcome to all three speakers today and let's get started. Thank you so much for the uh, lovely welcome. I am super excited to be here. I wanna welcome everybody and uh, we are really looking forward to our time together. Uh, we've uh, spent time preparing and we hope that you'll enjoy take away something useful from today and also um, participate. We have a of activities we're going to ask for people's uh, thoughts on. So I'm just uh, looking for this. next slide. Where is that? Oh, right there it is. Okay. Um, so I'm not going to introduce myself again. I'm Mona Sue Weismark and I'm uh, Glad to introduce Marcel. Hello, folks. This is Marcel Giovanetti. Good morning and or good afternoon to you and good morning to everyone joining us from the U.S. Uh, I'm going to let Brian introduce himself as well. Hi, uh, good morning, everybody. And um, hello to, to my, all our international uh, attendees. My name is Brian Chin, um, graduate student, uh, teaching assistant, and research assistant for Dr. Weismark, and we are so excited to be here for everybody today. Um, okay, so we're going to begin our session today um, by, uh, I think we're going to the next slide. Yep. Uh, we're going to begin our session today by getting to each of you to answer a few questions, which will let us to get us to know you a little bit better. Uh, there are no right or wrong answers to these questions, and it's completely anonymous. Um, and uh, you'll have a couple of minutes to think about and answer the following questions. Um, so the questions are uh, listed in the PowerPoint. How do you identify yourself in terms of race, religion, gender, nationality, and ethnicity? Uh, 
What is your earliest memory dealing with race, religion, gender, or ethnicity? Uh, what does diversity mean to you? How does your view of diversity align or diverge with what you see being practiced in the current community? And does diversity look different in the physical versus online communities in your life? Um, and I believe we're just going to have people answer their questions in the chat. Is that correct, Marcel? Right. We're going to do one at a time, Brian. So we'll, we'll take the first one. So okay, so jot down in the chat. How do you identify yourself? Let's take one at a time. I think that's a good idea. In terms of race, religion, gender, nationality, and ethnicity. And as Brian said, this is a chance for us to kind of get to know everyone, see who's here today. If you can just chat and okay. Um, so we have someone from Pacific Islander. Kind of want to see uh, Black British. Black non-religious female British. Okay, you put it all in there. Thank you. White British, no religion. Hmm. Okay. Ethnicity, Black Caribbean, White British, Turkish. This is fantastic. Uh, we've got a lot of mixed Asian, British, humanist, Black African. Wait, wait, wait. Half Indian, half white. Born in Finland, raised in UK as a British... White British Christian, Caucasian, female, Lithuanian, female, white. One thing is interesting. Most people here today seem to be non-religious. I feel like this is a trick question. White British, it's not. Trust me. Christian, British, Buddhist. But I don't like using any other of these terms. I get that too. And if you're not comfortable answering this, please don't. Catholic, British, Asian. Sardinian white Catholic, mixed race, spiritual, non-religious, white agnostic, global citizen, white English, German, South Asian, British woman, spiritualist, gay. Okay. This is, I would say, very much like the classes we teach at Harvard in terms of we always get just a very, very uh, poly group. And that's good because our... Um, talk today kind of assumes that's what it will african-american baptistic so uh looks like we have one u.s person here maybe maybe more thank you very much um don't identify i think and was my theories female white non-religious jewish christian parents scottish caribbean oh were we answering all of number one okay thank you this is great then uh, question two and again, if you don't feel like answering it or nothing comes to mind, that's totally fine. What's your earliest memory? Marcel just put it up here on the chat for us. Dealing with race, religion, gender, ethnicity. Um, I would give you my earliest memory, but I don't want to lead you on. So I'll wait until a few answers come in. So what's your earliest memory dealing with race, religion, gender, Hearing racial slurs being hurled at my mother. Wow. That, sorry to hear that. That must have been awful. Mm. Um, Catholics not liked. In elementary school. Same with me. It was elementary school. Identity problematic. Diversity limited. My grandmother being patronized by her white employees. I was five and a mm, blonde girl says she did not want to play with a brown girl. Three year olds feeling different because of being foreign, racial slurs, hearing stories about the Holocaust. These are very um, apt to what we're going to be talking about. This is unbelievable. Primary seeing I look Chinese, 
hearing that there were places black people couldn't go, being a minority in a Catholic school, learning a rhyme at school. And my mother told me that N-word was not to be used. People asking me to touch my hair. Wow, being the first, my Indian friend at eight years of age talking about being treated differently, being the first girl to be accepted to play school football, 1970 race marches. Uh, kids chanting, black is power, white is flower. I was eight or nine. Not sure. I grew up in a very mixed family, but I remember the lingering feeling of prejudice. Lining up in the free school dinner line. My parents were in the visual arts. When we were traveling, I asked if we wanted to I said, no, thank you. I've already been to church. I was seven and bored. Wanting a transformer toy, but it been clear this wasn't for girls. Being confused as to my identity. Been to a church. This is great. Um, and I will actually incorporate some of these uh, answers when I uh, start the lecture. My cousins who are half Lithuanian, half Sri Lankan, I'm Lithuanian, being spoken to as if they were less than me. Being confronted as to my identity very early on. Being called when I was about eight. Thank you so much for sharing this. This is very um, helpful. What does diversity mean to you? Being consciously aware of difference, being able to make a choice from this awareness. It's a profound answer. Thank you. Being said I had to be more feminine while I was a tomboy. Open your heart. Inclusion. Surrounding oneself, accepting difference, welcoming difference. Beauty, difference in a way, knowing my whole self, seeing systems that shape me. Difference is good, the human experience, multiplicity, being aware of celebrating beauty unique. Word I hope won't be relevant in the future. Difference, good thing, variety in human difference, but ideally including engaging everyone's uniqueness. Celebrating acceptance, multifaceted self, being able to be included regardless, being aware of everyone's similarities, uniqueness, accepting everyone equally, being spiritual. Thank you. We have two questions left. How does your view align with what you're seeing practiced in your current community? Including thinking differently. Exactly so, Julie. And we're going to be talking about that because not everyone thinks diversity is a great thing or should be appreciated. In fact, if you look at the history of the word, it actually has a negative connotation, odd and ugly. And so you're right. How do we cope with people thinking differently? What is being viewed, being aware of difference with others and systems and culture? Darren, this can de depend upon what is being viewed. Okay. Um, does diversity look different in the physical versus online communities in our life? Now, it's interesting because we've been teaching this at Harvard on campus and online, and we started on Zoom years and years ago, way before the pandemic. And I'll talk about that later, but I'm wondering what all of your experience is, especially since the pandemic. Is it different, diversity physical versus online? Really engage powerfully. So you have to conform to fit in. Inclusion, debates are happening. Conversations, not so much, I guess you're saying. Um, 
not happening. Too many judgments, Ruth is saying. Uh, that's a really good point, Ruth. Debates, but not silencing, but also silencing online. Very good point. Um, that was Shamila. I hope I pronounced your work, your name correctly. Rachel, at work, we have been very conscious of access to platforms for groups leading to exclusion, more diverse communities, sometimes wondering, what's that one? If that's present as much as the physical communities. I'm seeing more diversity online, but it's hard to know if that's because of what I joined or who to seek to engage in. Good point. Minorities speak out more for their rights and minorities ignore, don't speak up for their fellow humans. Um, Michelle, discussions appear to be more frequent online. Glad to see more of this conversation. Less familiarity, less trust. That's a very good point. I believe less censorship online. Marion, that's a good point too, but more disinhibition, ability, right? We don't know if that's a good or bad thing, I guess. Thank you so much. This is very helpful, and I'm going to be thinking about your responses as I move forward with the uh, presentation. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today, and Marcel and, and Brian as well, we'll all be sharing this presentation, comes from um, my new book, The Science of Diversity, that Oxford just uh, published. So I want to start kind of with a curtain riser, as I would call it. When here in the U.S., at least, and I'm, I'm not sure what it's like uh, as if this is exactly the same case in Europe. Um, most diversity training, when even you say the word diversity, like I was thinking as I asked you the question, what does diversity mean? Most people assume that when I say we teach psychology of diversity, I wrote about a book about diversity, that I am saying diversity is a great thing. We should accept our differences and we should all feel differently, think differently and do all of the above in the 10 minutes. And I would say that that is a myth. That's not possible. So let me say right from the beginning of this presentation, we do not have an agenda. It would be great if everyone could, we could all think alike. But one thing I can tell you, as people pointed out in the chat, we're not all going to think alike. We're going to have difference of opinions. That's been true since the beginning of time. So our approach, unlike many approaches out there, does not begin with agenda. We are not hoping you're going to think different, feel different, and do all of the above and the, by the time we end the presentation. The science of diversity approach that we'll be talking about today is first of all, does not promote an agenda. And that's really important. We accept that people are going to think differently. Some people, for example, don't even wish the world as we know, I didn't have any diversity in it. And we accept that those differences are there. Many people who consult on diversity and inclusion often have some kind of hidden agenda to try to get everyone to think the same about something, or they seek to prove the importance of diversity, or they want to outlaw law biases. And so often, as many people actually put here in the chat, instead of con real conversations, meaningful conversations, respectful conversations, enlarging conversations. Discussions on diversity end up as debates. 
demince and politicized. And that's not our intention today. Our method is designed to facilitate conversations and polarizing issues. And specifically, more importantly right now, to understand the role of justice and injustice in people's lives. So, you know, we don't have, uh, in our course at Harvard, we spend 15 weeks teaching these topics, uh, especially getting into exactly what do we mean by scientific reasoning. We can't do all of that today in, you know, an hour or what have you. So we're going to focus our talk on, right now, on the role of justice and injustice in people's lives and why that's so important in understanding diversity issues. And um, that also helps to explain why it is unrealistic to expect that we can outlaw bias or we can expect people to just, you know, get along or all appreciate diversity because the role of injustice in people's lives is so strong. And I'm sorry on one hand to hear that many people actually talked about that already in the chat. That was very surprising in, in a sense. It was a lot of that. So I'll relate that to what I'm about to say. Usually when you say the word justice, people think you mean legally. That's not what we're talking about. I also happen to be a clinical psychologist. I'm talking about justice from a psychological aspect, how it influences our identities, our memories, and our relationships with each other. That's the key point. I'm going to repeat that. Talking about injustice and justice in our lives because it has a huge impact on our memories as you saw, people here could remember when they were three, four, not three, five, I think it started, right? The first slur, being treated differently. And that doesn't just go away. That forms our memories, our identities, and our relationships with other people. And that's the point of what I'm talking about now. And so humans have an inborn sense of justice. They sense like we have an inborn sense of beauty, right? It doesn't we all agree in what it is. We all, you know, you might like earrings, um, you know, blue earrings. I might like gold earrings. You might like to wear earrings in your nose. I may not. But we all have a sense of beauty. Likewise with justice. You know, some cultures feel that if you steal something, your hand should be cut off, others not. But we humans have a sense of when things are fair and not fair. Psychologically speaking, our need for justice is a need for balance and closure. And so let's take a look at this because it's easy, I think, to understand this perceptually. But this is also true emotionally. And you hear the term like I need closure on this. Often we go to therapy for this reason. Things feel out of whack. So, but let's look a moment perceptually and then I think you'll, it helps me explain what I mean by balance and closure. If everyone could just take a look at these two images, most of us, when we see this, our minds literally close up the gaps. So if I said, what is this? You wouldn't, most of us would say it's a circle, it's a square. We wouldn't really focus so much on the um, spaces because our minds tend to just close it up. Here's another perceptual. Most of us, when we look at this perceptually like to see three brackets rather than six it's in balance it's more symmetrical so if i had asked you about this and said what do you see most of you here would say i see three sets of brackets 
Likewise, if you can switch now sort of from your eyes to your brain, most of us for justice means some kind of cognitive consistency. We want the world, we want our lives, we want our relationships to feel fair and in balance. And when something is not that way, we feel that it is unfair and it ought to be changed. And again, for everyone, this is different, right? I mean, if you, for someone who experienced a slur or someone who experienced their mother being mistreated by their um, employers, or if it was someone who saw their grandmother mistreat, it's, it carries on. All of our injustice situations may differ, but this need for wanting to see things right is similar. So we want to bring closure. We want things to be just and right. And when they are, there's a lot of psychology research on this. We feel, oh, that's good. Happiness and goodness belong together. They coexist. Now, this is the really uh, kind of the important and the groundbreaking um, step is when there's no closure, what the research suggests, and I'll talk about my own work in a minute, if it's not balanced in one generation, it literally is down the generations. So I'll give you two concrete examples of that. The study that I conducted asked the question, can we really inherit the sense of injustice? And so to answer that, brought together children of survivors and Holocaust, I mean, children of Nazis, descendants of Nazis and descendants of Holocaust survivors that came to the Harvard Medical School. And it was, it, it received a lot of publicity. It was in all the newspapers. They gave it various names, revisiting the past to transform the future, generational healing, healing the pain of the Holocaust, trying to heal wounds from World War II, Schulding geboren, meaning born guilty. But it was all this notion of, and let me reiterate, these were the descendants. No one here was a Nazi or a survivor. They never experienced this. More like what people were talking about in the chat. They witnessed it. Some people actually experienced it, but many, if I recall correctly, a few minutes ago, people were talking, they witnessed it. So these were people who witnessed their parents or grandparents, and they came together. It was the first study to explore, huh, what happens two, three generations later? Does that still have an impact on their relationship? Several documentaries were made about this meeting. Um, I think at the end of our presentation, Marcel is going to mention some of the resources. You can go to my Weissmark website. Um, Brian has posted them all there under, I think, videos or, or films. But you can actually see these sides meeting, journey to understanding, the past between them. Um, they're all very short, 10, 15 minutes. But you can get a sense of what happens. Again, this was the first time it happened when descendants of polarized groups come together. So um, I don't mean to, I don't remember the person's name, but someone in the chat saw seeing their, I think it was their mother or grandmother, right? Ostracized. So imagine what it might be like you weren't ostracized, I'm taking it. It was a sibling. Imagine if you met the, of the people who ostracized your mother or grandmother. That's kind of what the meeting looked at. 
did this person even know that their relatives did that? How did they react to it? Do they feel guilty for what happened? And on your part, are you resentful? Do you want an apology? That's one of the psychological dynamics I'm talking about of needing some closure. What were the feelings left on both sides since the parents never dealt with it or the grandparents? That's the question. We found that it was obviously very complex. These were actually two participants. Um, however, it, it clearly on both sides, the descendants of Holocaust survivors and the descendants of Nazis had a profound impact on their identity. This was a child, a child of a Nazi, high-ranking Nazi, child of a survivor here. And interestingly, it kind of produced, although they had never met before, it produced a very interesting, it's as if they shared something, though, on opposite sides that uh, made for a, what I would call a special relationship. We then replicated the study and we brought together, so this was third of four generations, descendants of slaves and descendants of slave owners. Again, the first time ever in the United States this was done. So it was different from the other study in that it was three or four generations. Very good documentary was made called Coming to the Table that was on uh, television here in the U.S. Oh, by the way, the other one was um, on German television. That's also on uh, website. And so they called it Slaves to the Past, Lansing the Past, Project Yale's Test of King Dream, an overdue apology. This whole notion again, what happens many generations later in the U.S. we're still dealing with this topic of slavery, the impact that has on white and black relationships. When I did this first study, it wasn't, believe it or not, hardly even talked about. It was almost taboo. This was in the 90s to bring it up. Now, of course, it's being uh, very much talked about. So it was the first ever historic meeting between these two groups. The participants shared their family stories. Here's an actual picture of a descendant of a slave owner and a descendant of a slave. And actually, this was a very, very powerful moment in the meeting where the descendant of the slave African-American woman said, wow, if we were meeting like this, looking at each other during slavery, I would have been lynched possibly for looking at a white person in the eyes. The point is there was still a lot of unresolved feelings. Again, none of them were responsible for what happened, but this notion that the justice was never balanced had a huge impact on their relationship today. So separated by many generations, interestingly, the white participants had limited information on their family's role in slavery. The black participants had more knowledge. One thing that was clear, it, the events impacted them, meaning slavery differently, but in profound ways. And they felt that the legacy of slavery had defined their identities. And it influenced their identification with their particular group. And both were very aware of the aftermath slavery has had on them in the country. What's interesting is that, on the other hand, it created a very polarized perspective, which we still see. Again, I can't get into everything today, but I think this whole notion of polarized, and someone brought that up in the chat, right? Polarized viewpoints. 
even though these people were genuinely trying to reach out and understand each other, their perspectives were very polarized. So, for example, a descent of a slave owner said, and this was a very um, hot button comment, shall we say, slavery was, I'm not saying it was completely right. Now, you can imagine, maybe not, that that would be very provocative to a descendant of a slave. And, and this descendant of a slave said, okay, it was legal, but who actually made the law? So it was a completely different view about the so-called legality of slavery. Another descendant of a slave owner said, but, you know, there was a genuine relationship of trust between the master and slave. Again, very hot button topic. And the descendant of slave said, well, my descendant, who was her great great grandfather, was treated by his master like a pet, a pet that he liked, yet he had to sleep at the foot of the bed, obviously. I think this was a genuine relationship of trust. So these polar opinions don't just disappear, right? They go on, they're past. And someone said that in the, I think they talked about the Holocaust, passed through stories. Descendant of a slave owner said, I resent being held responsible for something my ancestors did. And I'm constantly having to apologize to black people. Whereas the descendant of slaves said, I resent the country has never really apologized. So I'm just trying to point out here in this slide that when an injustice is passed down through stories or through seeing things or reading or what have you, also what's passed down are polarized opinions, which can make conversations on this topic very difficult because there's also a lot of emotion attached. And emotion makes it very difficult to have reasonable conversations. That's a really important point. So when I say just get rid of your bias, I'm not being realistic. I'm not thinking about your identities, your memories, and moreover, the emotions attached to those things. And that makes us who we are. So it's not realistic to expect you to just give up who you are. Okay, it's really an important point, and that's going back to my very first slide. So this notion of most diversity trainings, oh, come on, let's just get along. Let's appreciate our differences. It does not take into account the transmission of injustice and our identities and how that impacts us and how that impacts our relationships. So we need a different method. And I can't get into all of what that is, but I'm just um, highlighting that now. So the findings show that the injustice didn't go away. Again, I encourage you, if you want to see, watch the short films and you'll get your really good um, sense of what I'm talking about. We've made progress, but there are very unresolved feelings of injustice on both sides. Some sense of guilt and responsibility felt by some of the white participants, not all. Some descendants of slave owners felt the responsibility to personally make amends more pictures. It was, as you can see, just by looking here quickly, very emotional. People really connected, even though there were these differences of opinion. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, legacies of injustice and polarization uh, that we might currently see in our communities today. 
So here are just some examples of how you might see uh, polarization and injustice, um, some hot topics, if you will, uh, that are still kind of part of this legacy that Dr. Weismark talked about. So, for example, we could see polarization between Catholics and Protestants, between Hindus and Muslims, Democrats and Republicans in the United States, Christians and Jews, immigrants and natural born citizens. Uh, liberals and conservatives, and the heterosexual and gay communities as well. So these are just a few examples of how uh, polarization uh, might occur. And when we look at legacies of injustice, we'd really like you to answer this question that I'm about to put in the chat. How are legacies of injustice still visible in your country of origin today? So much like we talked about uh, with Dr. Weismark's research, uh, the injustice that was passed down from generations between slave owners and descendants of slaves, uh, as well as, you know, uh, descendants of the Holocaust survivors, as well as uh, Nazi Germany. We're asking you to consider how you might actually see that still visibly in your country of origin. Uh, so, for example, I'll give an example for the U.S., um, we recently, in the last couple of years, uh, there has been a movement to maybe tear down some of the statues, rename buildings that have been named after folks that have um, a less than favorable legacy when it comes to things like slavery or other injustices in the United States. So we've seen that, you know, uh, really that movement kind of has arisen in the last couple of years in the United States. Uh, and so there's been a call for a reevaluation maybe of what we celebrate and what we kind of erect monuments um, towards and what that actually stands for and what are we actually celebrating and, and um, giving accolades to. So if you can think of any examples, these are just a few that we've listed on the slide. Uh, where we kind of see this legacy of injustice passed along. Uh, and I, and Dr. Weismark's going to engage you in uh, some conversation from some of the, uh, the feedback that we're getting right now. Dr. Weismark, can you see that? Yeah. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so this yes, is we amazing. Can. Excuse me. Sorry. So, sorry, guys. Just, just to interrupt very quickly. Um, any of the speakers, um, if you're not speaking, if you can mute your microphone, that'll prevent prevent echo. Just so if you're if you're not speaking, could you mute your mute your microphone? Thanks. Um, there's so much here. Is there a way to go down in the chat? Can I scroll? Oh yeah, okay. Because before I couldn't. Okay, so let me scroll down here. Um, postcode lottery where you're living has a bearing on the quality of the healthcare treatment. Yes, that, that is a big, big issue of injustice. Your zip code can determine um, your education, the quality of your education. A post-code lottery on education too. Um, school curriculum, what history is taught, taught? I think that's a really good point. Uh, states, slavery was hardly taught. I think there was like, um, I don't know, half a paragraph about it, maybe. And of course, the perspective of uh, how it's taught. Black people, especially men, still being killed, still being treated as a threat. Disability Discrimination Act, little impact over the leverage. Minorities not represented in the government, correct. Um, religion, 
still ridiculously no numbers of female leaders correct in the u.s believe it or not the we've ever had a uh female south asian uh in as vice president first one and only so yes um, already referring to europe as if it were a separate place only the continent so it was feeling odd to hear brits refer to as european even but i'll stop now i'm off topic okay um statues to remain serve as a reminder, Paul said. I'm not sure what that means. Um, Labrita said African-Americans have to wear their hair a certain way. That's a good point. Julie, I never heard of um, Mary Seacole until two years ago when my daughter learned about her. But this year, my youngest daughter didn't learn about her, but about a white alternative figure. Interesting. Some religious holidays are bank holidays. Only religious holidays are bank holidays in the U.S., um, Okay, so I think there's a lot of examples that have uh, come up of how injustice is still visible. As you can see, it continues um, generation after generation, right? The legacy of injustice is transmitted. And these are great examples of how we see that showing up even today um, in, our, in our current world. Um, so in the U.S., we also have affirmative action and uh, even in other parts around the world as well, something similar, where there was a legal effort in the United States uh, that was specific to kind of creating um, and righting wrongs of the past and creating more equity. Uh, but in the 1970s, there was this concept of reverse racism. So there was backlash towards affirmative action and policies that were created through this lens of affirmative action. Um, and most folks found that a form of reverse discrimination. Um, and that was a, a direct response against affirmative action and race-based policies. So this idea of um, if you're trying to be equitable um, and offer maybe preference uh, to minority groups, well, is that a form of reverse racism? Uh, is that is that that's become the common grievance and the pushback for affirmative action? And we see this happen again and again. So even with the uh, statue example that I gave uh, earlier, there are many folks that were saying, well, why should we tear those down? Isn't that a part of our history? That's the polarization view, right? Um, the, other, the other side of the issue is why should we tear those down? Um, shouldn't we remember some of the transgressions or things in the past? Don't we want to have those things to remember instead of erasing it and forgetting if this was part of our history? So there's oftentimes uh, backlash and sometimes even white resentment towards my minority groups that might be viewed as being favored citizens, right? And so uh, the next part of our discussion is we really wanted to uh, get your feedback on a few of, of these um, uh, questions as well, specifically regarding kind of backlash. So the first question is, what efforts in your country of origin have been created to reconcile the injustice of discrimination towards minority groups? So this is an interesting question because some, some countries might have more to say uh, and it's more talked about in the spirit of reconciliation than others. Uh, so we'd like to get some of your comments about the first question before we move on to the second. So someone's yeah. is saying immigration 
backlash against immigrants seems to be prevalent globally. And it's sort of this pushback, right? Have immigrants been getting more than the citizens? Is this playing out at all in, in your country? So just want to hear something. And has there been resentment that you've noticed a backlash against minority groups? Well, Labrita, the Black Lives Matter movement, I'm not sure what you're saying there. Could you expand on that, Labrita? How is that a black? Oh, you mean the resentment against the Black Lives Matter movement? Yes, it looks like she's saying yes. Yeah, that's a very good point. And someone actually said that in the chat somewhere else um, about um, equality legislation, but much tokenism, the resentment against the movement. Exactly. The Black Lives Matter has created a huge polarization in the United States. Uh, then the United people are going to all lives matter. So this notion of a minority group or any group, not even a minority group, sort of speaks up. Why are they getting this preferential treatment? Comments in the work person won't get promoted now. Excellent point. Okay, so we're bringing this up again to show that these issues are real. And you cannot just force people to give up these really polarized views because, you know, the person who's feeling that a black person is coming and taking their place or the or people who are in Black Lives Matter, they have a lot of uh, emotion attached to these movements. Yes, huge resentment in the UK against migrants, correct. People crossing the channel and being imprisoned and deported on arrival. Hotels where they are targeted by far-right groups. Exactly, Sally. It's happening all over. Um, I'm hearing comments of past colleagues at a global software. It's not fair that white middle-class men won't get promoted now. Correct. Um, there's been a lot in the U.S. about, you know, uh, I don't have white privilege, the whole notion. I mean, people who feel really strongly that racism means that every white person on the planet needs to admit their guilt. Microaggressions that people might experience in the workplace because they haven't given a job. People, frustration, resentments can come out. Excellent point. Feeling the person is undeserving. Excellent point. In our class, we have a lecture sometimes just about that topic. Polarization because there hasn't been enough open dialogue. Um, yes. Yes. So again, what makes the scientific method approach that we teach in our class that we're just kind of opening you up to is we do not have an agenda. We do not start with the notion that one side is correct. We respect these polarized views. We respect these emotional, and then we look at it scientifically. We see, can we make any progress in a conversation as if we're doing a scientific project together? Not science. Science can be misused. Scientific thinking. Um, is Black History Moment just a token as opposed to policy improvement? Paul, not everyone wants policy improvement. So then we talk about that. What does that mean? Funding to reduce barriers and promote cohesion. Some people don't want that. They think too much funding. In the UK, our former president, Trump, all um, diversity training that he thought was... Um, how divisive. Divisive, divisive is the word I think yeah. he used. Yeah. 
So we have just a few slides left uh, to wrap up the kind of formal lecture part of it. And then we'll have um, Q&A right after. Is that correct? Great. Just what I always enjoy. So actually, as I'm talking for the next few slides, please jot down any questions that are still fresh in your mind. Okay. And then we can engage in conversation, which is always fun. So as we've tried to point out, social science research suggests that when you just have simple discussions, and we could see that even in our chat, right? People have opinions about these topics, strong opinions formed by our memories of what happened, might have happened to us in our own childhoods. And so when you try to talk about topics like immigration, affirmative action, I mean, just think for a moment about your own views. I'm sure most of us think we're correct. We're right. We have the right view. So just taking the example of Labrida talking about Black Lives Matter in the chat, right? Um, people who are in the Black Lives Matter, I'm sure, feel very strongly that that is the only correct view. And if we tried to have a discussion about it with someone who said, no, I think all lives matter, it would probably end up as an argument or as a debate or each trying to prove to the other that they are right. Um, and that's uh, someone else said that earlier in the chat about judgments. We usually come to these conversations with deep judgments based on our identity and our memories. And so it's hard uh, when you're talking about affirmative action or gender equity or religion or immigration or reparations or slavery to actually have. So the notion of, oh, yeah, let's just come together in a diversity workshop and talk about this. Or if you're talking about civic education, oh, we just need to deliberate issues. I'm not sure why we haven't learned uh, because it's, there's so much research out there to show that we'll actually, as this visual demonstrates, really become divided. Usually what happens when we have discussions about these things is each side even feels stronger about what they already felt. So the conversation is not what, you know, you would call a growth, meaningful conversation. It's more of a debate. And in some situations, you want to debate, you want to prove you're right. But in topics like this, often they say the purpose of coming together is to have a conversation. So why defeat the very purpose of the conversation? We need a different method. Again, I wish I could explain the whole other method. I can't. Um, course about it um so and that is what we explain and and unfortunately it's not a 10 minute fix it takes a couple of weeks of thinking and activities and practicing it's not a five minute i wish it was wish i could say oh at the end of this lecture day, we'll all go uh home or to our communities be able to have these really reasonable conversations i do hope perhaps in our q a we'll be able to demonstrate what that might look like but it takes time and so after 50 years of research what we do know it it suggests the findings suggest that many people um that these diversity training programs and i'm talking mostly about in the u.s are mostly focused on legislation and compliance companies don't want to be sued so, for example, in Starbucks, unfortunately, some um, black customers were uh, arrested uh, because they wanted to use the bathroom. It was just this really 
awful situation. And Starbucks said, no problem. We'll just close down all the Starbucks and have everyone do an anti-bias training and that will cure the issue. Um, and, but anyway, you know, most it's motivated so they're not sued so they can say, look, we did the anti-bias training. Mandatory trainings often have unintended consequences. People and companies usually often resent it. It's happening in universities too. They don't want to attend it. They feel forced. Nothing genuine is really happening. Sometimes it is effective. I mean, I do remember having a student who worked in an insurance company in Connecticut and said that their mandatory training program was really effective. So obviously sometimes it can be. But often people feel they're being forced fed something and they resent it. And often people will will rebel against workshops or rules where they're forced to do something. And so it would be good to have another approach. So the scientific method, our way of looking at these polarizing topics from scientific reasoning, can be helpful for really facilitating conversations on topics without forcing people to change their minds on it, so to speak. And it requires, as I hope at least today, being mindful of how our our feelings, our histories, our identities, our need for justice, all flow often about our, our views about these topics. You have to have some psychological understanding that these are not just political discussions, that they are deeply embedded in us and you can't just order them away. And that if you're made to feel ashamed or blamed for the way you feel, often you'll even lose your desire to change even more, right? Because you feel justified, because you have some memory, some recollection. You sincerely believe what you're saying. So you don't want to be shamed or blamed. And that's, I mean, even though I may not like the other person's view, and often I don't like hearing other people's views, I disagree. The scientific method requires looking at both of them from the scientific reasoning and putting aside what I may personally be feeling. And back to that word, which is a really good word someone put in there, right? Pause on my judgments. And I look at the questions hypothetically. So I mentioned this at the beginning, and this is one thing we can all, I'd be very surprised if there's someone here who would disagree with this statement. It's a universal truth that diversity is a fact of nature. It's not only that there are different flowers, trees, houses, everything out there, right? There are differences of opinion. There are differences of human feet, um, human nature. Diversity is a fact of our world. Nature, humans, social classes, families, religious groups, ethnic groups, it will always be part of our universal truth. And so we can't simply order away people's diverse opinions and viewpoints. It, it's unrealistic. And scientific, a very fair-minded and balanced way to manage these viewpoints and to foster meaningful conversation. lecture today by engaging with everyone and answering your questions. We would like to invite you to please take a moment and reflect silently 
on how historical injustices may have influenced your identity. Uh, you'll want to think back to how you answered the questions at the start of the lecture with regards to the topics of race, religion, gender, nationality, and ethnicity. Furthermore, did this presentation influence what diversity means to you? If you want to put your thoughts on this last question in the chat, uh, we would love to hear them. And thank you so much for, for all the interaction and participation so far. Dr. Weismark, it also looks like we've gotten um, several questions about the course as well. So if you want to maybe uh, talk a little bit about that after we do this last yeah. question. And I'm thinking this last question, we might, we're going to move right into Q&A, right? We might want to move into that. Okay. So um, maybe we'll do that. What was the question about the class? Um, there were lots of questions about how to study more, some questions about your book, and what does your book touch on um, as well, and questions about how to enroll in the class. So I put the link to how to enroll in the class in there and told them that um, the next course is in the summer. Okay, uh, but why don't, we, um, why don't we just wrap this up and then go to all the Q&A? Is that okay? We all agree with that? Okay, sure. so um, I think... I really at this point, and then please, I'll get to all those questions. Uh, I really wanted to, first of all, um, thank everybody uh, for being here and for participating and thinking about what we're talking. I always feel that it's a privilege. Uh, this topic is very passionate. I'm very passionate about this topic. And even though I had to get up at 6 a.m. this morning, I was still passionate about doing it. And I know Brian and Marcel uh, share that. And that's kind of how we teach a course. So it's always a privilege. I, I feel this is so important um, to our relationships as human beings. And I'm really excited to be doing this globally. Um, so thank you all for being here and listening and thinking about these things. And I'm going to guess I'll go right into the questions now. Should we do that? Okay. So, um, and then you can share about the resources in the class. About the class, by the way, there is a, always, a, I mean, in the summer, there's a waiting list. So uh, registration, I think, opens in February or something. I don't remember the exact date, but Marcel will tell you. But uh, we, we cap it. It's capped at 45 students because we do have a lot of breakout groups and we're really like engagement. So it's unlike like today, where we're all together in the whole class. In our class at Harvard, we have breakout rooms, so you get to know everybody. That's really important. So we keep it at 45. So as registration opens, it fills fast. So if you're interested, fill it up. Love to have you. And we do always have people from all over the world. Um, and it's a lot of fun, a lot of work, a lot of fun. But, um, okay. Um, Would you like me to say a little bit more about the class yeah, right now and signing up, Dr. Weisner? Um, so folks, Dr. Weismark does teach her class um, at Harvard's Extension School. It is online in the summer. The class meets uh, twice a week, uh, usually on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, and it's for a seven-week period. And then we, Dr. Weismark also teaches the course in the fall and hopefully next year, maybe even, even in the spring, right? We're considering teaching it even in the spring. So there'll be several options. In the summer is in the Harvard Summer College. So in the fall, spring, it's at the extension, but that's the way Harvard works. So, and you can, of course, get Harvard um, credit for it. In the summer, it's considered a regular college course. Yeah, 
Yeah. And we have, uh, as Dr. Weismark said, there's folks from all over the world that take the course as well. And we've had graduate students, undergraduate students, um, and even some some folks in high school that have kind of enrolled in the course over the summer. Um, so the next, the next course, the uh, registration will probably begin uh, in the spring. Brian, do you know the date for course registration in the spring? On March 2nd. So March 7th. Okay. March 7th. Oh, you know what I'm thinking? And as Dr. White. To do, the best thing mm -hmm. to do, Marcel, pardon me, is and maybe um, you can put the link, Brian. Sign yeah. up in the newsletter. Because if you sign up for our Science of Diversity newsletter, which is free, you'll get, Brian will be putting out something about when registration opens. And if you're on the newsletter, you'll get it right away. Right. That's a great okay. idea, Dr. Weissmark. I think good. Brian... Can we move? Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Was there anything yeah. else we needed to add? Uh, no, there are some questions no, about I'm your book as well. This now. So, um, first of all, thank you. This is also uh, interesting. Yes. Um, what's the answer to the white guy who says, my white child will suffer by black getting progression over a lot of personal reflection in the past? And are these questions or are these comments to the, why don't we begin with questions? Can people start posing, posting their questions? Because I'm not seeing question marks. <laughs> I'm sorry. Could you post, could people start posting some questions? I see these as comments, which I think this was in reaction to the last thing. But if you have some questions, that would be great. So one question we have, Dr. Weismark, is um, someone said, have you looked into uh, mediation methods? Someone asked a question about that. Uh, could, they, could you say more about Regarding that? What do you mean exactly? Could you, could you spell out a little? You mean mediate? Have I looked into I'm not sure. I don't want to guess. I'm not sure what you mean. Could you please say a little bit more? Uh, while we're waiting for that, Dr. Weismark, um, it looks like another question uh, that came in is, does your book touch upon intersectionality, positionality, and dominant culture? Uh, yes. So it talks a lot about, you know, identity, which is often intersectionality. But uh, not trying to, someone here said, not trying to sell the book of the course. So uh, really, that's not our intention today. Our intention today was to present the science of diversity method. It happens to be based on the book. We happen to teach about it in the course, but we're all good. Not trying to sell the book, of course, at all, because the course is actually gets a waiting list. It's just if you're interested, which is why we brought it up. And with regard to the book, likewise, um, you know, it's just if you're interested in the topic, please feel free to explore more, um, but not at all interested in trying to sell things to you. I am interested in trying to uh, convey, you know, what we teach about and what we write about. And I hope uh, we've sparked your interest in this notion of why injustice is important in polarized topics and how it is to have these conversations and why a new method is uh, needed. Mediation is a method for reconciliation. Yeah. Um, I'm Paul, I'm not, I'm just not sure what the question is. I totally think mediation can be useful for a method of reconciliation, depending on the kind of mediation it is. So when we brought together December 
descendants of slaves and slave owners and Nazis, descendants of Nazis. It wasn't for mediation. It was for research, right? It was to understand the interactions. But can you foster conversations between these youth groups, understanding the role of injustice? Totally. A lot of mediation techniques were actually born out of the research we did. Um, so totally. How can it be an example of how the scientific method? Thank you for asking that. That's a really great uh, question. So let's take the example of mass. Right. I, in the States, it's a huge issue. I know it is in Germany, too. You know, are the masks effective? There are really strong opinions about that. Some people and I'm just giving this as an example can do it with other I'll do another topic too. But and in class, we were talking about that this semester. Or take the issue of police bias. Are white police officers more likely to shoot at a, a black victim than a white victim? This is a, a big issue in the United States well, as well. And so in our classes, rather than just discuss this and our opinions about this, we have the students after they understood, and I've given several lectures about what scientific thinking is, how we form our hypothesis. So that's why I said it can't be done in a minute. We teach to think, how do you conduct a research study? How do you come up with hypotheses? In both of these polarizing topics, like are masks effective? Are white police people biased? We look at competing studies, studies that have come up with opposite conclusions. So, for example, with racial bias in the police, there's two huge studies in the United States. One happened to be done by a black academician who found that they were not biased, ironically. Another done by a white academician found that they were biased. These are two really good studies, opposite conclusions. Why? And this is very common in research. And most people do not have the education to comb through studies to understand the data, to understand why studies on these polarizing topics come to different conclusions. So we will look at, we look at that. I wrote a really good little short article, if you want, again, for free on psychology today called Evaluating Psychology Research, which in three pages kind of summarizes how to look at conflicting data. Whoever asked this question, if you're interested, I would recommend you look at that paper. There's actually a lot of little short articles, all free and psychology today that you can look at that answers these questions. But that's how we would approach a polarizing topic. And so that's a very, and so in our breakout group, we'll go in, they look at both studies, right? Uh, Greg asked, when you bring people together, uh, do you now prepare them to listen to each other in any way or reflective listening or not interrupting, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I'm on some um, consultations in, in companies and we don't think ahead of time, right? We engage people on the topics, um, but we'll intervene, so to speak, if it becomes sort of emotional and then say, you know, let's, let's pause here for a minute and let's listen to the other. So in a sense, yes, we do that. The really cool thing about scientific reasoning and getting students and people, employees to reason together is the scientific method has built in 
you have to pause, right? Because you have to think about the research question. You have to think about the data. So it puts a pause and it, co- it, it kind of creates a reflective learning situation by its very nature. Yes, the Vietnamese Zen master. I mean, this may sound ironic and it's a profound question you're asking because people don't usually think of scientific reasoning and spiritual practice as similar, but they are, believe it or not. So scientific method is not something I created. It's been with us since the 18th century, right? It is the only method that was universally accepted for increasing our knowledge, right? It's our knowledge. And I'm not talking about cherry picking science. I really want to emphasize, I'm not talking about science with a capital S. The first chapter of the book, I wrote an article called, I mean, the chapter is called, um, What is Scientific Reasoning? So that will also answer it. Um, But it is similar in that it requires, as the Zen master says, right, deep listening, um, because it requires that. And when you're working as a research team or you learn to think scientifically, you have to listen to your colleagues because <laughs> you're working collaboratively together to understand a research question. It's part of the method. So spiritual thinking is sort of an individual. Scientific method is actually a very specific way of advancing this kind of thinking. Hope that answered the question. Marins, lots of research not getting it. Notice their biography is always good. Right. And again, that's why I'm, I know this is hard to get at because it's kind of novel and new. I am distinguishing science from scientific reasoning. Scientists, academicians, they can all have their biases. Unfortunately, science is often used to promote an agenda, right? I want to convince you of something. Lawyers do this, people do this. Ah, but it said this. You cherry pick. We are talking about scientific thinking. And so we talk a lot about the cherry picking in science and, you know, and why that's not right. But I totally agree with you. Um, it asked, did either group in your research find their justice? I'm sorry, you broke a little bit, Marcel. What's that? Um, there was a, there was an interesting question about your your former research where it said in your research did either group find their justice? That's a great question. Um, so I think if I if I understand the question and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you might be asking did they come to some kind of closure or balance with that? And um, that's. Uh, yeah, Marin, that's a, that's a long, <laughs> it requires a long answer. Let's put it this way. I think for many people, it brought some level of, let's call it healing, right? There was something that seemed missing that was now there. But it's a, it, was, it was a process, right? These meetings went on for four or five days. So there was this deep connection. They felt a lot of, it completely, well, no. And from a research point of view, I also want to tell you the study attracted people who were interested in meeting the other side. 
we had invited some people and they were like, I would never go to a meeting to meet the other side, right? So it was very, um, there were a lot of limitations to the study. I don't think that these participants are necessarily representative of the whole population. Eager, they were curious, they wanted to meet the site. So if there was some reconciliation, part of that had to be because they were inclined to come to this and they were not, it was not mandatory, it was not required, right? But yes, I mean, I think a lot happened, although we haven't looked at long effects. How has that changed over the years? I'm not sure. Someone was asking for the newsletter link. Maybe you can put that up there, Brian. Yeah, it's in the chat now, Dr. Yeah, Rizzo. I don't know, Marion, did that answer the question? Was there something else there that maybe? Yeah, so someone said from across the pond perspective, it's been disturbing to see the Trump ditching all science. Correct, but, and the scientific thinking approach. Yes, and having very, and I think, this is the misunderstanding. Um, I don't think Trump has had any courses or any, uh, any zero education in what scientific thinking is. His background is business. You know, I think it was Plato who said, if you wanted to come to the academy, you had to, they wouldn't accept anyone unless they knew geometry into the academy. And I always joke that I don't think anyone should leave Harvard unless they've had a class in scientific thinking. I really feel that way. Because I think as educated citizens, we should all, and I sometimes talk about this in class, be able to understand data. And again, I want to really make the point, science, so Trump can easily do this because science is often misused. And that's why I'm not talking about science. We can study to prove our point. And that's what Trump does. That's what politicians do. Right? I had a friend. Billy was the head of some family program and she wants to get funding and she went to speak to some congressperson and he said, show me the data, meaning just convince me of the one data point. Don't, right? That's not scientific thinking. And the reason Trump can do that is he himself does not understand it. By contrast, Fauci does understand scientific thinking. They asked him, would you take the vaccine yourself? He said, well, I wouldn't make that decision unless I looked at a meta-analytic study. I thought 90% of Americans do not know what a meta-analytic study is. And that is the most reasonable answer I ever heard he gave, because that is the only way to make that decision. If you take a vaccine, that's how you need to make the decision. That's in my article about evaluating psychology research. Are the police biased? You have to look at a meta-analytic study. To, to come to a reasonable conclusion. I don't think Trump knows what a meta-analytic study is. A brilliant business person, I know, but I'm saying he never had the training. So that's what scientific thinking is. In my opinion, as educated citizens, we should all be able to have the power of being able to understand these topics. That's good. I mean, I could call it the scientific process if it was just too long. So the science of diversity, I totally agree with you. I thought about that. Scientific reasoning, scientific thinking. Of, I actually like that a lot more. Maybe I'll use that for an upcoming. I think there are several articles out there that I do that, right? 
inclusion or cancel culture and scientific reasoning. I have used that, but we needed a short thing. I'm totally with you on that. Perhaps bringing your process to others is part of your work. What do you mean? Was that to me? I'm not sure what that was meant. Oh, okay, Rashmir. Okay. Am I missing questions? I'm sure I am. Uh, you're muted, Marcia. Oh, you're good. Yep. Uh, Dr. Weisberg, there's a question from uh, Roy, and the question is, um, although individually uh, we must, although individually we, we might have an awareness of and a motivation towards supporting diversity, what can we do to promote a fairer society when our leaders, um, in order to be elected, need to some extent to support the status quo position? So it's more about what can we do to promote a fairer society. What are your thoughts, Marcel? Um, I think the, the, the conversation, starting the conversation, I think that's, you know, an important first step. How do you start to have conversations um, and that aren't um, attached to a particular agenda when you start the conversation? So I think that's what we've been talking about today. So if, yeah. So in the first step in a fairer, more just society is to get folks to see both sides uh, of a conversation versus uh, coming at it with an agenda oftentimes will raise defenses right away. I think that's a really good point. Agreed. About how do you start the conversation? What are the most neutral questions you can start with? That's another question. Yeah, well, I think you, uh, I think you pointed to that. I mean, one is what we try to do in the lecture, right? I think hopefully you'll leave this lecture with an awareness that what I might find unjust in my personal history is what's different than what you might have found, right? And so we heard each other today to see that we're all unique in our memories of what we've experienced, and that shaped our responses. Now, um, I may, for example, you know, really be able to understand someone else's memory of some, let's say, a racial slur. Okay, I've never experienced it. But now I'm like, hmm, wow, that person really experienced that. That must have been traumatic, terrible. I have some understanding. Hypothetically, before this meeting, maybe I, I was one of who felt that immigrants were getting ahead or, but, you know, but now my view is been enlarged to take into consideration how their past is influencing their feelings about it. Not that I agree with them necessarily, but I'm at least able to hold that perspective in my mind at the same time I have my own. Does that make sense? the class as well is um, we often ask folks is this your opinion or can this is this opinion substantiated by anything and I think that you know that requires students to dig a little bit deeper or people to dig a little deeper as you were talking about substantiating the arguments with research yeah exactly 
Okay, I'm not seeing uh, any more questions in the chat. I'm tr trying to go back up a little bit as well. Oh, here's one more. Which one is that? Uh, so there's a question from Greg, and uh, Greg says, I appreciate this model. I wonder what responses have been from those talking about diversity, but with an agenda. Activists on the left, for example, do they respect your project or are they critical of it? So I guess how do people receive the no agenda approach is what Greg is asking. Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. Um, Uh, I'm, I'm thinking how to answer that from the level of like the students and the presentations we've done. They've always been really phenomenal, right? I mean, glad to say people really feel that they and they learn a lot and they take away their law. Have there been outliers? I do remember one person who said, I don't believe in science. Well, so, you know, there's not much, you can't do much more with that. If you don't believe in science, you don't believe in science. I, uh, then probably this is, you know, you shouldn't sign up for this. And to your question, I think it's a process. Um, I talk a lot in the class about my own personal history. I am the child of survivors. Both my parents were in concentration camp. I were very young when they were in concentration camp. And my entire extended family uh, died in concentration camp. I talk about this in the book. I talk about it for a reason, because I know firsthand what it means to have um, memories transmitted, the sense of an injustice and how that's influenced me and how hard, how difficult it is to get, it was for me to sort of um, have any response to anything about the Holocaust, right? I had a very strong opinion based on my feelings, justifiably, right? You know, uh, entire extended family murdered. So, I had strong feelings, so I know what my process was like. So, and it was, it was a long process. It's a developmental process. It's not like, oh yeah, okay, now I understand this. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It's more like a zigzag. So in answer to your question, this is a process. Of course, people have very strong opinions and they have their agendas and they're not just gonna give up their agenda because they're, you know, they're learning another way. On the other hand, we've been teaching this for 20 years. Have people progressed and have people had unbelievable experiences in the class? Yes, it's been enlightening for many, many people. But not for everyone. That's where the diversity comes in. And someone said here, I don't think it's wrong to have an agenda. Well, yeah, of course, people have agendas. And so they're going to, I mean, that's part of their memories and histories and, and wanting to do things. Correct. Um, but we are, you know, our approach is educational. So in education, um, ideally, you, it's not a political class right and and so knowledge and approaching the truth is a non-agenda enterprise and that's what the beautiful that's why the scientific reasoning was created in the 18th century right we used to think the earth was the center of the universe because there was an agenda to think that way and scientists said no mm, i don't think so we really have to explore if this if earth is the center 
regardless of your agenda here. We really want to know the truth. We want to move forward in our knowledge. And that's how the scientific way of thinking was really approached. So, yes, sometimes it's great, you know, in different contexts, if you're in a political party or religious or whatever, to push your agenda. But if you're in an educational context and you want to advance knowledge and get closer to the truth, an agenda is going to get you there. You have to have this way of thinking that allows you to approach a hypothesis, even when you're not crazy about that hypothesis. The earth is not the center of the world. What? You're kidding me. Dr. Weismark, it looks like this question has been asked um, twice. Um, is there any merit to constellation work to help find balance? Well, what is, I could say more about that. What do they have in mind? I'm not sure. Mm, so let me see. Uh, sure this question is asked by Tracy. Do you want to expand on your question a little bit? Oh, she's talking about the work. Uh, they oh, are talking about the work of family constellations. Yeah. You mean from family therapy and so forth? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that could work individually. I mean, we don't do that in, in an educational setting, but therapeutically, right. I used to actually be a practicing family therapist um, years ago, but that sounds great for therapy. Well, I think, the question. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think doing science, thinking scientifically and getting educated and increasing knowledge is a privilege, right? It means you have time to devote to research and scientific thinking. I would say that's a privilege. I feel it's always a privilege. Every time I write a book or an article or teach, it feels, aside from being a passion of mine, it's a privilege to be doing this. On the other hand, it's very hard work. <laughs> and you don't become a billionaire. So I don't know, maybe it's not a privilege. Sometimes I feel like the amount of time and hard work that went into it, if I was in business in terms of material, right? And there are many scientists who have died penniless or, you know, Galileo was in jail for his discovery, literally put in jail. So I don't know, I'm not sure. Maybe it's not such a privilege. Yes, I agree, Angela. I think family constellation could be great with intergenerational issues, but we're talking, and the work that I was doing was looking at different families, right? Descendants of the different families, the interpersonal, but totally, I agree with you. Justice can be a sudden therapeutic of energy work, certainly. Okay, so I think we've... Uh, Tied it up. Is there anything else, Brian, that the resources? I think that we've got that. We put a lot in there. Um, pretty much if you're if you're more interested, obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, Dr. Weisbrock's previous work and whatnot. All that can be found uh, on the link, which I'm going to type in the chat right now, um, Weismark.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter there as well on the main page. Uh, and you can also check out... Um, Pretty much all of our articles are listed on there, as, as well as uh, any resources uh, connected to Dr. Weismark's work. Um, and I believe now we're going to do a survey, right, Marcel? Yeah, we'd really love to get your feedback. And it's anonymous, correct, Marcel? 
I, I don't know if it's set up with the anonymous Dr. Weissmer because we had issues with that, but um, uh, we're going to go ahead and put the link in the chat right here. We would really welcome um, just you giving feedback surrounding uh, this presentation. There's just a few questions, but if you would take uh, maybe the next five minutes to do it right now in real time, we would really appreciate it. Dr. Weismark is also able to see the feedback as it's coming in. So if there are any other questions that you might have or things that you want to put um, in there, we would very much appreciate your feedback. Just, um, and it, we're just asking you to, you know, it's important to us for feedback because we give presentations. So we'd love to hear what you think. If you loved something, tell us that. And if it's something that can be improved, please tell us that too. I'm actually looking at eight or underway. Thank you very much. I'm trying to see if it's anonymous, and I really can't tell for some reason. I don't see any names coming up here. So uh, where would I look for that, Marcel, if it's anonymous? I'm just seeing like 12 under. Usually you can, yeah, usually at the end is when you uh, can, it's more under the comments. Yeah. Okay. Um, since you're not getting a great thing, so hopefully if it's not anonymous, that's not an issue. Um, no, actually it says. It is anonymous, Yeah, right? if, you, if you don't enter your name, it will just uh, be anonymous. Right. Yep. Um, It also looks like uh, folks are entering their email in the chat. If you would like to be added to the newsletter, um, you can uh, certainly go ahead and enter your email in the chat as well. And um, we will make sure that you're added. And again, it's a free newsletter. There's no cost to it. You just get updates about Dr. Weismart's articles, um, some of the course material um, or any publications, that type of thing. Thank you, everyone, um, for your participation and attention. And um, feel free to contact us if you have any questions. Pleasure being here today with you all.